You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. I went to Jersey Mike's for lunch today, and the woman behind the counter asked the lady behind me if she knew what she was going to order, and the lady just said yes. (laughs) And I wanted to be like, well, good for you, but what is it? I cannot work. I cannot work with customers. (laughs) Have you ever had a customer service job? No, because in high school, I when a lot of my friends worked uh, retail, I would babysit. Mm. And then in college, I got an internship in corporate America. So I kind of skipped over that. Wow, must be nice. Now, I worked, uh, you know, customer service jobs until I got the job that I'm in now, basically. I mean, well, except film when I was working in film. But that is a version of customer service. Just whatever. Everybody's got weird personalities. I used to work at a movie theater. That was miserable. Truly could, miserable. Could you hook me up with some uh, movie posters? If I had worked there, yes. You know, if I'm still working there, then yeah, I could have. But I'm not, so I can't. Um, I could have hooked you up with really big bags of old stale popcorn. Mm. Sometimes if they know that they're going to have like a crazy like day, they pop a crap ton of popcorn ahead of time, shove it in like a back closet, and then bring it out to like deal with the rushes. Uh, so that was a thing we did. Um, and then I worked at a place called Boscov's, which is like a department store on the East Coast in like the tri-state area of New Jersey, Philly. You worked and- in women's intimates? <gasps> I didn't. I actually worked. Initially, I worked at the candy counter because it was like an old school department store. They had it was a candy like in counter. the 50s. <laughs> Truly. This How place old would- are you? I'm like 75. Okay. Um, is it possible? Whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, and then I worked in juniors and I worked in this place called the auditorium. Okay. And the auditorium, you may wonder, like, what the hell is it? So it used to be an actual auditorium where they would have like fashion shows and, you know, beauty contests and whatever back in the day, back in the 50s when I was a young girl. Um, but then uh, as times changed, so did the auditorium. The auditorium is, or it was the place where things went to die. So things that never sold ever would get marked to sh- marked down to shit and they would be put in the auditorium. And people, first of all, are crazy when they come into department stores. Second of all, the type of people that shopped in the auditorium specifically um, were crazier than the average crazy shopper. They tried to literally haggle with me, you know, tried to trade drugs for various things in the auditorium. Um, and I was 16 at the time. And I was traumatized from that experience. So I have no idea what you're talking about. But <laughs> um, this is Two Girls, One Crossword. And we're it the Evening Girls. This is your favorite weekly podword crosscast. My name's Chelsea. I'm Grace Topinka. I'm putting my last name here, whether you like it or not. Fine. I'm Chelsea Rowan. I hate saying my full name. Is that, is that something that nobody else cares about? Um, you should say you're Chelsea Topinka. We're sisters. Oh my God. <gasps> sisters as of today. <laughs> We're Grace and Chelsea Topinka, and our um, <laughs> podcast. Thanks for joining. So, sister, sister. I oh, wish wow. we had those outfits. If if we had unlimited um, funds and we were actually still going to work and could show off, I would completely just copy the outfits from Sister Sister. We, we could do that. Like we could plan to do that and just match all the time. And people would be like, "What is wrong with you?" And we'd be like, "At least we're having more fun than you are." We could. Um, speaking of fun, should we get into our heights and shites? Yes, the highest and the the, lot, the shyest points of the week. That's my new catchphrase. What do you think? Uh, really has a good ring to it. Thank you, thank you. Let's let's get into it. All right, uh, I'll start us off. This isn't really 
I have two shits. They're not really about the clue itself. Okay. I don't know. This one's kind of gross to me. The USA Today crossword on January 13th by Zhaoxin Bernikel. Um, 43 across dinner table sound. Burp. Like mouth noise? Oh, okay. You it's don't like, like burps. No. I mean, I don't mind burps. Like, if you're drinking a lot of soda and we're outside, but while eating dinner, unless it's like you guys are drunk and eating hot dogs, even then, I don't know. Um, it just, <laughs> I feel like I you don't. burped once around you and you're like you're disgusting i don't like when people burp in my face and i can smell it i mean i do not blame you that is disgusting yeah you can burp in the opposite direction but like i feel like people you know eat hot dogs and then burp by me i'm obsessed with hot dogs today and then another um thing that i just thought was kind of interesting really has nothing to do with the clue but the wednesday january 13th new yorker by elizabeth c gorski uh 47 down kaylee who played penny on the big bang theory and it's kaylee Kuko? Kuzo, Kuoko? Or, or whatever her name is. It's not Kuzo. <laughs> it's oh, like I, Kuoko, think I, think, I think I just or tried to do that puzzle and I put like, Q- I spelled it C-U-O-S-O, but I guess it's wrong because I didn't finish the puzzle before we started recording. So, Well, I just think it's an interesting piece of trivia that Penny, who is one of the main characters in Big Bang Theory, who's been on it, I think she was on the entire series run, uh, She her character does not have a last name because uh, whatever, the guy who makes all those hates women so gotta love it mm-hmm. you heard it here first chuck lorry right i don't like that show no uh, no and it's like one of the most popular shows it makes in the country me, yeah makes me feel a little uncomfortable i can't even hate watch it it's just completely like un- it's bad. unappetizing it is unappealing unappetizing not good to look at etc you know what mm-hmm. can you do um Grace and I found this week that um, there's a guy named Matt Gritzmacher, and he actually does a daily crossword newsletter. So I just want to give a shout out to Matt. Um, you can sign up for this daily crossword newsletter at the link in his bio on Twitter. And his handle is at Gritzmack. So that's spelled G-R-I-T-Z-M-A-C. We will link it in the description of this episode. We will. Um, it's amazing. Like every day you get an email listing all of the various puzzles that were released for that day. And it tells you whether it's a subscription or if you can do the puzzle for free, which is really cool. Um, and I just want to say thank you to Matt for what he does, because I fa- now that I have the newsletter coming in, I find it much easier to find a puzzle to do. Because sometimes I'm like, what do I want to do? What do I want to do? And I don't always want to do the New York Times. So, And he makes the decision for you. He does. And I now get to turn my brain entirely off. So thanks, Matt. (laughs) Thanks, Matt. Um, Speaking of the New Yorker, um, I did the Friday New Yorker, Wineloo. And I want to say that I loved the opener of this puzzle. Um, One across, first Asian American woman to win a Golden Globe for lead actress in a film. And the answer is Aquafina for her role. in The Farewell, directed by Lulu Wang. I still need to see that. I still need to see it as well. It looks amazing. It's essentially, the plot is um, Aquafina's grandmother is dying, but she doesn't speak English, and it's the family's decision whether or not they tell her what's going on. Um, and Yeah, that's it. We have never seen it, so we can't say more about it. <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's it. That's all. But Aquafina also has her name is spelled really uh, like in a fun way, so I she's good crossword fill. She really is. It's like awkward, but aqua fina. Fina, yeah. So that's fun. 
Um, also in that puzzle, 12 across, metaphorical realm for creepily lifelike simulations like real dolls and the cats in 2019 cats. The answer Uncanny is Uncanny Valley. Uncanny Valley, which I almost picked as my topic today, but I passed on it. I passed That's, on it. It's kind of hard to do, I think, without the visuals. It is hard. Um, it's rock hard. <laughs> it's so hard. Uh, speaking of hard, 55 across, good places to get pushed on the playground. The swings. Swing set. Very nice. I don't know. Oh, I see. I was, I'm already thinking swing pushing, not like getting <laughs> bullied. <laughs> what else you got for me? Well, back to the New Yorker by Elizabeth Gorski. C. Gorski, sorry. Um, I liked the opener for that one. One across dollar stores, question mark. Was oh, is Tip jars. Yeah. I just thought that was fun. I always love a good pun. And mm-hmm. then, let's see, there's one New York Times that I really liked this week. It was Tuesdays on January 12th by Ross Trudeau, who we know and love. Um, love let's see. I have a bunch from that one. Uh, 22 across Queen's Realm, question mark. Ant colony. Oh, right. Right, right, right. Three down paper you take to go on a trip? Question mark. Oh, LSD tab? Yes. That freaked. We had it like a little bit filled in and we kept putting like, we're like, ID tag doesn't fit. Luggage, like bag tag doesn't fit. I don't get what's what this is. Um, That's what he wanted you to think. I know. He got me. He got me. I thought the theme was um, overall pretty fun. Thirty. The revealer was 37 across adage on the impermanence of suffering or a hint to these four other clues. And it was this too shall pass, which was like the full across answer. But then all of the um, related clues were things that could be passed. So, for example, 18 across hard deposit in a bladder, kidney stone, um, 61 across jiffy, brief moment, moments can pass. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed that one. It was good. It was a good one. Uh, speaking of fun. New York Times ones that I really like, I really liked the Thursday, uh, January 14th by Amy Lucido and Ella Dershowitz. Did you do mm-hmm. this one? I think I did part of it. This had a really fun theme. Basically, there were circle letters interspersed throughout the grid that spelled out the word bottle. And when you, you know, used those letters with the revealer, which was... 38 across, classic party game, or a hint to solving the answers that intersect circles. Uh, The answer was spin the bottle. Mm -hmm. So basically, um, the circled letters that spell the word bottle, like you could, quote, spin the bottle, you know, um, it's hard to, clockwise or whatever, it's kind of hard to explain. But by spinning the letters within those circles, it affects the answers uh, of some clues. So just to give you an example. 18 across, um, the answer could either be, the answer was gator and seven down um, would have been lutes. But if you spin the bottle, then it would be Gabor or lutes. And so one of those was a ghost answer, depending on how you spun the bottle. Um, I like when they do that when it's like two different clues could have two different answers, depending on which one you, you choose. Exactly. Um, So I really like that. And it, Felt a bit complicated to solve if you're kind of new to crosswords, but if you've been doing them for a long time and you you're like, oh, I get what's going on here. It was a lot of fun. Um, so. If you're a genius like us, then it shouldn't really be a problem. Yeah, so. and we're actually not geniuses, so not gonna toot our own horns, but 
Um, another clue that I just want to shout out, uh, 17 across home of Baikal, the world's deepest lake. And that's in Asia. That was the answer. But, um, I want to shout out a TikToker. Her screen name is, I said screen name. Her username is Geodesaurus. Um, and they're a great lake enthusiast and they post incredible TikToks about all types of bodies of water. And I never thought that I would care about lake talk, but I really do care about lake talk. And I care about this woman, Geo, who posts incredibly informational videos about bodies of water. Anyway, if you're interested in any of her TikToks, look her up on TikTok or go to our Twitter where I shared three TikToks about Lake Baikal today. So, Well, why don't you just make a podcast with her about freaking lakes then if that's what you <laughs> want to do? I've written her 10 emails. She has yet to respond. So, Okay. Um, I have some actual sports-related clues that I did enjoy, which is shocking because normally sports ones, you know, yes. for a loop. But Who are I just, you? Well, this was kind of like they combined sports with something else. So this is from the Wednesday New York Times by Matthew Stock. Um, this was the theme. Like, there's three. 20 across, uh, address by a Sacramento NBA player, the King's Speech. Sacramento Kings. But that's also, you know, the movie. Um, 35 across, game notes for a New Orleans NBA player. The Pelican Brief. Wow. Okay. And then 46 across, Charlotte NBA player in charge of recycling. The Green Hornet. Very nice. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed that because it's like, I, I know that these are all sports teams, but I don't I didn't know what sport. I don't know what city they're from. But then when you put in the, you know, other clues and then I know it's a movie, then... We're Gucci. That's great. I to be it. completely honest, as soon as I saw the theme answer or clues for that, I stopped doing the puzzle because I was like, I don't know anything about sports and I felt really stupid. Um, but this is just a, a reminder to anybody out there that sometimes puzzles will surprise you. And sometimes things you don't know in puzzles will not actually end up hurting you. I cannot say that Don't I learned that of until, being hurt. you know, I learned that right now. I didn't learn that while doing the, the puzzle. Is the Pelican Brief a movie? I'm pretty sure it's a play. Maybe it is. No, maybe that's Death of a Salesman. Death of a Salesman thinking. is definitely a play. A play. And also a now, movie, Okay, right? talk about being stupid now. Whatever. Yeah, I'm, sure so someone, I'm sure someone will tell us. Um, so, yeah, that's it. That's all. I'm, I'm done making a fool of myself for this week. Oh, I want to do one last call out. Uh, the Monday, January 11th. Uh, New Yorker by Patrick Berry. Uh, I really liked Six Across, Shoplifter's Foe, Derisively, and that was uh, Rent-A-Cop, which is just <laughs> a fun answer to see in a puzzle. Uh, I also liked uh, Two Down, Rootin', Two in Device, question mark. The answer is Airhorn. Very nice. And then I just want to bring this up as like one little thing to, you know, one cultural moment that's happening on TikTok, and I want to talk to Grace about it. 35 Across, Hold Underwater, and the answer is rinse off. And I want to know if you've seen the TikToks where the audio is, my boyfriend got these for me, but they're just too sweet. So I hold them underwater and rinse all the chocolate off. And it's basically peanut M&Ms. And this girl rinses all the chocolate off the peanut M&Ms and just eats the peanuts. I feel like I have seen that. And but I, I want to know linger. if other people do that or if this is just crazy. No, who would do that? Just buy peanuts then. Right. I saw someone do it they used that audio and they were like rinsing the chocolate off of like a Twix bar or something with caramel underneath. Mm -hmm. And then like they cut and the caramel, they like dropped the caramel out of the the wrapper, but it was actually a hot dog. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) 
All it's right, well, that's TikTok for you. <laughs> if I find it, I'll share it on uh, our Twitter. I think this is the most times we've ever said hot dog in an intro. People <laughs> probably true. think that we like bet each other, like, okay, if you slip this word in five times, I'll pay you a dollar. <laughs> we should do that and then have people guess what the word is. <laughs> for the episode. Oh, I love that actually. Secret word. Yeah. Okay. I'm actually going to, I'm going to keep this in the back pocket because, um, I've been listening to other podcasts recently and they have fun little things that they do throughout their episodes that I, not that I want to steal anybody's ideas, but I think what you just said could be a fun additional idea. All right. Well, we'll, we'll discuss later. A new layer as it were, or a new, a new condiment. <laughs> All right. Hot dogs. Anyway. Yeah. Um, shall we do the coin flip? Flip it, baby. I'm ready. I was born ready. Was she? Was she? All right, I'm flipping the coin now. Heads. That's you. Me. I'm going first again. Okay, folks. Buckle up. Hey, listeners. Future Grace here. We're going to get back to our topics in just a minute, but I wanted to share the very exciting news that Chelsea and I will be on Fill Me In's podcast this Tuesday, January 19th. If you don't know Fill Me In, they're the other crossword podcast duo, and they are much fancier and more put together than us, um, but they did graciously invite us to join them on one of their episodes. So you can find Fill Me In on Apple Podcast and Spotify, and make sure to follow us on Twitter for more information. Okay, back to your regularly scheduled programming. My topic comes from the Monday, January 11th, New Yorker by Patrick Berry. 36 down. Solver of the Sphinx's riddle. Ooh. And the answer is Oedipus. Nice. So we're going to be talking about Oedipus, you know, like the character, Oedipus Rex. And I'm also going to be talking about the Oedipus complex. So if you're interested in that, stick around. Um, yeah. Have you read any of the Oedipus stories? I think I did read them in college, freshman year, but I don't remember. But I do know that a joke my sister and I used to make all the time is, you know, every time we call somewhere, we always have to spell out our last name, Topinka, because people don't mm-hmm. know how to spell it. And so we always thought it would be funny if we spelled it with um, all words that had silent letters. So T is T is in tsunami, O is in Oedipus, <laughs> V is in photograph, or P is in photograph, etc. Very nice. I like that yes. joke. Thank that's, you. That's great. Mm-hmm. Um I have read all of the Oedipus stories, and I really like them, actually. Um, I went through a hyperfixation maybe three years ago where I was obsessed with um, finding all the best translations for all the classic, you know, dramas, etc. And um, Oedipus Things is one of them. that don't surprise me. <laughs> they don't surprise me either, you know, in retrospect. At the time, I was like, why do I care so much? But I cared a lot. Um, and I sent lots of emails to lots of... Uh, independent booksellers looking for specific translations like anyway i was a mess three years ago anyway (laughs) let's get into it if you don't know who oedipus is oedipus is a character in a sophocles play called oedipus rex the play is oedipus rex which stands for oedipus the king basically that's what it translates to we're going to talk first about sophocles there's not much known about this guy so we're going to be real quick about talking about him he was born circa 496 ce in Colonus, near Athens, uh, Greece, and he died in 406 CE in Athens. So, didn't move around a lot. Can't really blame him back in the day. Uh, He's considered one of Athens' greatest tragic playwrights and is probably best known for his Oedipus stories, of which there are three. Um, And so his father was super wealthy. He was like a wealthy manufacturer or whatever. So Sophocles had a genuinely good life, you know, 
very trust fund kid trust fund kid exactly so if you're wondering why he was able to write these stories it's because he came from a wealthy family if he had been born poor we might not have oedipus which means freud might not have given us the oedipus complex so just stick a feather in your hat okay i don't know if that has any relevance but um yeah i don't know i'm really good at idioms uh so yeah uh like i said not many details are known about his life so uh i'm just going to talk a little bit about things that sophocles did right so he wrote a lot a lot of plays he wrote over 123 dramas and he wrote them for various dramatic festivals the first of which he entered in 468 and he won so good for him uh and some of these dramas had innovate like innovations in them right uh so he was the first dramaticist to use what they call scene paintings, which are basically like pictorial props or like props to give like the sense of location or the sense of atmosphere. So maybe like a tree branch or like a backdrop or something like that. He was one of the first people to do that, which is kind of cool. Um, and he also introduced using three actors in a play, which previously it was only two. So adding wow. a third actor, yeah. This guy like, is crazy coming out here with these off-the-wall right. ideas. Could you set imagine? design and I cast. <laughs> Can you imagine? Without Sophocles, we would not be able to have the ensemble masterpiece that is Cats. So. I'd like to think someone else would have stepped up <laughs> by then. But you don't know. We don't know. It's we impossible really to tell it. Yeah, It is. Well, we could go back in time. Stir things up a bit. <laughs> don't let them know that. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry. So yes, he invented like the three character, the three actor play, which basically meant he can have more complex stories. So instead of having two people playing all of the roles, so there could be like 10 roles played by two people, he now had three actors playing 15 roles. So there's more complicated plots, more complicated stories. They could be longer, etc. Um, so that's kind of cool. And one of his trademarks in his plays was the emphasis that most people lack wisdom. So I'm going to read you a quote from Britannica because it kind of explains, like, this is what his, most of his plays were about. Quote, He presents truth in collision with ignorance, delusion, and folly. Many scenes dramatize flaws or failure in thinking. So deceptive reports and rumors, false optimism, hasty judgment, madness. The chief character does something involving grave error. This affects others, each of whom reacts in their own way, thereby causing the chief agent to take another step towards ruin, his own and that of others as well. We'll see a lot of this in the so end of this place. People are dumb. People are really, really dumb. R-O-Y, R-O-Y, dumb. Got it. Sadly, only seven of Sophocles' 123 plays survive in their entirety. Only seven. <gasps> wow. What happened? He had a fire or something? Who knows, man? Someone took him and threw him in the ocean. They're like, I hate the three actor plays. Go back to two actors. People that was are his very cousin. resistant to change. Yeah. Yeah. Mock gafflees. <laughs> oh. I'm, I'm, I'm on fire today, folks. I'm on fire. So, yeah, we're going to talk about the, the, the Oedipus plays. Um, okay. They are also known as the Theban plays. Uh, as these three plays refer to the character of Oedipus in one way or another. So there are three total Theban plays, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus at Colonus, and Antigone. Um, and all concern the fate of the city Thebes during King Oedipus's reign or directly after. Um, and they aren't a proper trilogy in that, like, 
he wrote them as a trilogy and wrote like a continuous chronological story. He so wrote it's each- not like Lord of the Rings? It's not like Lord of the Rings. So yeah, he wrote each of the plays years apart for different dramatic festivals and just happened to also keep them in the same universe, you know, with the same characters. The mm-hmm. first to do it, who knows? Very cool. Let's talk about Oedipus Rex, the first in the quote unquote trilogy. We'll start first with what happens before the play even begins. Okay. So Oedipus lives in Corinth um, and he decides to flee his home because he hears a prophecy that he will kill his father and marry his mother. And he's like, absolutely not. I'm like leaving mom and dad behind. I'm not going to stick around for this messy, messy bullshit. I don't blame him. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he shows up to Thebes, which is a city, right? Uh, And there's a sphinx guarding the gate of Thebes. And he, in order to like open the gate and not be eaten by the sphinx, he has to answer a riddle, which he does. And as a reward, he becomes king because he marries the queen of Thebes. Her name is Jocasta. Cool. So that is what happens before the play. Then the play begins. He is now King Oedipus. Wait, how do we know that that's what happens before the play? It all happens within dialogue. Okay. I see. Or like the chorus does like some kind of like explainy thing at the very beginning. Exposition. It's, it's been Hello, like three years show since I read tell. it. Show don't tell. I know. I know. Sophocles, he might have invented like the landscape, but he really needs to work on his form. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to buckle up, folks. This is going to be a bumpy, bumpy ride. Okay. This is going to be like watching like your favorite soap opera. All right. Things are about to get messy with the Oedipus family. He's King Oedipus, okay? He's the beloved ruler of Thebes, but Thebes is currently experiencing a plague, so Oedipus sends his brother Creon to visit none other than the Oracle of Delphi to figure hey. out what the hell they should do. And We know you, her. We know her. She's doing great. She's helping the King of Thebes. Uh, the Oracle of Delphi, we talk about her in the episode called See What You've Done, episode 71. Check it out. Um... So Creon goes, he goes, chats up the Oracle of Delphi. Uh, He comes back to Thebes and says, the plague is a result of not convicting the previous king's murderer. So the king before Oedipus had been murdered and nobody Mm. found the murderer and nobody had convicted him. And so the gods were like, plague Thebes. And so there was a plague in Thebes. Naturally. Naturally. And of course, Oedipus is like, I'm a righteous king and I'm going to catch this murderer because once I catch this murderer, then the plague will go away. So he summons this seer. It's a famous seer. And his name is Tiresias. Tiresias. Okay. And Tiresias refers, like, refuses to tell Oedipus anything. Oedipus is like, do you know who killed the previous king? And the seer is like, I'm not telling you anything. And so Oedipus is like, you're not telling me anything because you killed the king. <gasps> and Tercius is like, okay, hold on, hold on, back up. I'm not telling you what I know because you killed the king. So he accuses Oedipus of having killed the king. So what, what's the truth here? Okay, who's telling the truth and who is lying? And so Oedipus is obviously very pissed. He's like, I didn't kill the king. I'm not from Thebes. I'm from Corinth. Like, I couldn't have done that. And so his wife, Jocasta, is like, babe, don't worry. Don't listen to the seer. He has no idea what he's talking about. You can't trust prophecies and you can't trust oracles or seers because I personally have an experience where a seer or like an oracle told me that um, that my son would kill his father and it didn't happen. It didn't come true. So like, 
you don't have to listen to everything that you hear, okay? And so Oedipus is like, thanks, hon. But by this point, he has like the worm in his head. It's like going Mm -hmm. round and round and it's getting bigger, okay? Because he's thinking of the former king's death and an experience he had many, many years ago before coming to Thebes. Many, many years ago, Oedipus was questioning his parentage in Corinth, right? And he was like, I don't know if mommy and daddy are actually my mommy and daddy. So mm-hmm. he also travels to the Oracle of Delphi and he's like, hey, are my mommy and daddy, my mommy and daddy? And the Oracle's like, I'm not telling you anything about that. But what I am going to tell you is that you're going to kill your dad one day and you're going to bang your mom. These and oracles aren't that helpful. They're not helpful at all. In fact, they lead people astray, which we learn about. You can't trust everything an oracle says. Episode mm-hmm. 71. Anyway, so Oedipus is like, I didn't come here for that nonsense, but that's the nonsense that I got. And so I'm never going back to Corinth. Like, I'm not going to go back to Corinth and I'm not going to bang my mom and I'm not going to kill my dad. So that's why he leaves Corinth and goes to Thebes, meets Jocasta, marries her, etc. Right. Uh, But while he's traveling, before he arrives to Thebes, he comes to a crossroads. And at the crossroads, a carriage comes by and nearly runs him off the road. He he, he argues with the travelers at this crossroads. Things kind of get heated and eventually he kills them all. He's like, peace, bye. And then he goes to Thebes, marries the queen, so on and so forth. Boom, done, Delhi. But before you can think about this any longer, a messenger shows up uh, and tells Oedipus that his father in Corinth has died. So Oedipus is like, thank God, thank God, because... I thought I was going to murder him. I thought I was going to murder him. So it can't happen. But then the messenger's like, but wait, there's more. By the way, your mom also wants me to tell you that um, you're adopted. So he finds out that his parents in Corinth are not actually his parents in Corinth. So it's possible that he could still kill his dad and bang his mom. What's it going to be, buddy? What's it going to be? Okay. And so then... I think I know where this is going. I think you know where this is going. So Jocasta is like, holy shit. And she remembers having a baby boy and getting rid of him because the oracle told her that he would one day kill her husband and bang her. She's like, not going to happen. Turns out, she realizes the truth first, and she realizes that her current husband is also her son. So she tries to get Oedipus to stop the investigation of the murder, because Oedipus doesn't know yet, right? But he will not let it go. He's calling in witnesses, and he's like, who was there when the previous king was killed? Who was there? Who was there? This herdsman shows up, and he reveals the truth to Oedipus, um, and like says that it was the previous king was the man he killed at the crossroads. Um, and like Oedipus realizes that Jocasta heard a similar prophecy to his, the whole thing is really messy, right? So Jocasta is like completely, you know, devastated. She goes and kills herself. And then Mm -hmm. Oedipus gouges out his eyes, uh, and goes into exile because nobody wants, you know, him as king anymore because he killed the previous king and he, you know. Sleeping with his mom. Isn't she a lot older than him? Right. I guess, I don't know, people probably been kids there when they were like 13. Exactly, right? Uh, and so he, the end of the play is him going into exile and his brother Creon becoming king. All right, well. Right. There you have it. Right. And so I'll be a little bit more brief with the other two plays because, you know, it's Oedipus Rex where we talk about the Sphinx, right? In Oedipus at Colonus, this is play number two. He is like an old blind guy. He goes to Colonus and he has this feeling that if, the king of Athens lets him stay in Colonus. He will be able to bless the lands and bring a lot of prosperity to Athens. 
But the problem is, Thebes, you know, the place where he was, you know, banging his mom, is having lots Mm -hmm. of problems. So his brother comes and he's like, please help us. Like, if you die in Thebes, then you'll give blessings to Thebes and all of our problems will be better. And Oedipus is like, no, you guys had your chance. I'm staying here. Um, And he has like another little prophecy moment where he says, my two sons will kill each other. Like they'll die at their, at their own hands. And he tells his sons that. And they're like, dad, you're crazy. And his two daughters are there with him when he dies, as is the king of Athens. And then Athens gets all the prosperity. He gets all of the blessings from Oedipus and Thebes gets a curse because Oedipus is pissed that he had to go into exile. Mm-hmm. That's basically Oedipus at Colonus without going too far into detail. Um, and then the last play is Antigone, which Antigone is the name of one of Oedipus's daughters. So Antigone comes back to Thebes. Things are a shit show in Thebes. Okay, Creon, Oedipus's brother, is still ruling. They've been attacked a bunch of times. One of Oedipus's sons betrayed Thebes and fought with the enemy army, and the other stayed on Thebes' side. And so Creon is like, we're only going to bury the loyal brother and give him all the honors of, you know, a funeral. And the That's other fair. brother... The other brother, we're just going to leave out for the vultures, right? Um, and Antigone is like, no, we need to b- bury both of my brothers. We need to bury both of my brothers. And the king is like, F that, no way. And so Antigone's like, okay, then I'm going to bury him in secret. But Creon finds out and he's like, now that you went against the king's word, I'm going to kill you and your sister, Ismene. And so both Cre- Antigone and Ismene are facing a life sentence of death, quick death. Antigone's betrothed, which is also Creon's son. I'm telling you, this is a soap opera. I would love to watch this as a soap opera, right? Antigone's like husband-to-be is like, okay, dad, please do not kill them. I have a really bad feeling about this. Also, I love Antigone. Like, don't do this. And Even Creon, though she's my cousin, I still want to marry her. It's like, it's really messy. So Creon's like, okay, son, I'm hearing you. I won't kill Ismene. She didn't do anything wrong, but I will still kill Antigone. I'm going to lock her in a tomb and she'll die of starvation. And so his son is like, not good enough. I'm never coming back. I'm leaving the city. I hate you. As the son leaves, Creon realizes, okay, no, you know what? I'm reconsidering. This is a bad idea. I'm feeling bad about this. Like something bad is going to happen if I kill Antigone. He goes to rescue Antigone from the tomb. Too late. She has hanged herself already. (gasps) in despair and then her betrothed so creon's son has also killed himself out of agony for antigone being dead and then because creon's son killed himself creon's wife kills herself and so we end the play ends with a somber warning from the chorus that pride will be punished by the blows of fate all right good to know classic everyone dies at the end classic everyone dies and so that's the uh, the theme and plays Already now I know. Lots of drama. So how does this give us the Oedipus complex? What's the Oedipus complex? That you want to sleep with your parents or something? I think it, it gets oversimplified to that, and it's much worse than that. And also, I hate like just reading about the Oedipus complex just makes me really critical of Freud, as I think most people should be. But um, we've all heard the phrase, you know, Oedipus complex, um, and now we know like where the name come from. It become it's because you know Oedipus banged his mom unwittingly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it has the actual complex has very little, actually nothing to do with Sophocles. So the Oedipus complex is a psychoanalytic 
theory coined by Sigmund Freud um, in interpretation of dreams and also a special type of choice of object made by men. So those two places is where he kind of talks about it. Um, and just to like briefly explain what it is, Freud used the term to refer to a child's unconscious sexual desire for the opposite sex parent and hatred for the same sex parent. He believed that the Oedipus complex, uh, this, you know, sexual desire in boys and girls, uh, kind of manifested in different ways, depending on if you were a boy or if you were a girl. So for boys, the complex manifested in a fear of castration. And for girls, it manifested in a uh, penis envy. So he thought like all girls were envious of, you know, the male genitalia, whatever. So it apparently like manifests between the ages of three and six. And during this stage, children experience an unconscious feeling of desire for their opposite sex parents and jealousy and envy towards the same sex parents. Uh, and these feelings for the mother and rivalry towards the father lead to fantasies of getting rid of the father and taking his place with the mother. This is happening between the ages of three and six, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so these hostile feelings towards the father lead to castration anxiety because he thinks irrationally that the father will castrate him as a punishment for having these feelings towards his mother, right? Because all three-year-olds have such complex you know, instincts and thoughts, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not a child psychologist, but it doesn't add up to me. It doesn't add up to me. (laughs) (laughs) So to cope with the anxiety of the fear of castration, right? The son then starts identifying with the father. So the son will like adopt the the attitudes and characteristics and values of the father. uh, And the father will become their role model rather than their rival. Um, And through this identification with their supposed aggressor, boys acquire the superego and the male sex role. Um, And yeah, the boy substitutes his desire for his mom with other girls. So criticisms, very little empirical evidence to uh, say, yes, this is true. Like truly very little empirical evidence. Uh, A quote from simplypsychology.com, quote, according to Horney and Thompson, I know, (laughs) What a name for such a topic. Um, Rather than girls wanting a penis, what they really envy is male's superior social status. Freud assumed that the Oedipus complex is a universal phenomenon, but Malinowski studies of the Trobriand Islanders showed that where the father is the mother's lover, but not the son's disciplinarian, the father-son relationship was very good. So that's Hmm. one. That's one thing. Additionally, the major criticism for this theory is that, like, the Oedipus complex is based almost entirely on a singular case study of a singular boy. This little boy is known as Little Hans. And this is just, it's a little bit longer of a, like, a section that I'm doing here, but I'm just, I, I gotta get into this. Okay. Basically, Little Hans was this boy who once had a fear of voice, horses, voices, voices, horses. And Freud was brought in to, like, analyze the case and figure out, like, why he had the sphere of horses and why it eventually went away. Wait, I feel like I read about this when I did the phobias. You might have. I don't know, man. This is, it's friggin' weird. Um, So, apparently, Hans developed this fear of horses around age three. uh, Because at that age, he had started developing an interest in what, you know, this article called Whittlers, which is basically male genitalia, his own. Mm -hmm other men's, seeing it on animals, whatever. Um, And so his mother hated this and 
would threaten to tell, like, would threaten to castrate him if he didn't stop playing with his own, you know, genitalia and stop talking about other genitalia when he saw it. And so Han's fears of horses, like, worsened after his mother said that she would castrate him if he didn't stop playing. Um, and, like, he was even reluctant to go out and look at a horse, right? So Freud thought that the sphere was related to the horse's large penis, mm-hmm. of course. Um, and the phobia improved only when, like, they would put, like, a large black harness on the horse. And apparently Hans's father had a black mustache. And so the boy was trying to relate with his father to get rid of his fear of being castrated. Okay. okay. Um, and yeah, so Freud suggested that Hans resolved the conflict as he fantasized himself with a big penis and married to his mother. This allowed Hans to overcome his castration anxiety and identify with his father. Clearly. Um, and, uh, but like I said, this was the only child patient that Freud like ever took on. Um, and apparently Hans's father was also a huge fan of Freud's psychoanalysis. And mm-hmm. he actually did most of the psychoanalysis of his own son while Freud kind of took a backseat and was just like using the, the little boy as a means to prove his theory about the Oedipus complex. He didn't actually do the case study himself. And so thanks to Sophocles and Freud, we now have the Oedipus Complex, and also thanks to little Hans. Hopefully he had a better life after Freud left him alone. We can only hope. Um, so yeah, that's it, and that's all, folks. Horses. What a ride. We started <laughs> off with talking about, you know, college English classes, and then right into horse wieners, you know? Yeah. Sometimes it happens like that. It does happen like that. It's actually a decent segue into my topic. Oh, horse wieners? <laughs> Uh, you'll, you'll see. Okay. All right. My topic comes from the Sunday, January 10th, Washington Post by Evan Bernholz. And it is a 55 down drug that NASA gave to dolphins in the 1960s in an attempt to communicate with them. Oh, God. LSD. Yes. I was thinking about doing this, Grace. I was thinking about it. This is truly a wild ride. So everyone buckle in. Um, it's, it's about this specific clue, LSD and dolphins, not just LSD on its own. So we're just going to dive right into it. All right. Okay, let's dive. I'm dive. I'm in the ocean. The important player in this game, there's two. One of them is a man named John Cunningham Lilly. Okay, I'm going to refer to him as Lilly. Got it. He was an American physician, neuroscientist, psychoanalyst, psychonaut, philosopher, writer, and inventor, and he was known for inventing the isolation tank and experiments with psychoactive drugs like LSD. And he used both of these to try to communicate with dolphins. But let's see what what brought him there in the first place. Okay. So he was born in 1915 in our very own St. Paul, Minnesota, which Love is in the Midwest, so I'll claim it. And he was basically a child genius growing up. Um, all of his teachers like encouraged him to pursue science. He always did really well in school. So he ended up getting a bachelor's of science at Caltech. And then he enrolled in medical school at Dartmouth. But after two years of... Um, medical school at Dartmouth, he decided he wanted to focus more on medical research than on like being a therapeutic medical doctor. So then he transferred to UPenn where he earned a medical degree in 1942. So yeah, this guy was a smarty. Smarty pants. Shortly after medical school, Lily came across a beached pilot whale on the on the beaches of, I forget where he was, but anyways, he was beaches. shocked by, yeah, on a beach somewhere. 
Um, he was shocked by the size of the animal's brain. Pilot whales are big, okay? And this was a time in science where people were like, big brains means really intelligent. People were like obsessed with brain size. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Sorry. Does this mean that he found the pilot whale and then he cut the brain out? No, it was probably decomposed, I'm guessing. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Um, and he probably just saw like how big his head was. This was before like SeaWorld and stuff, right? So people weren't seeing, you know, these types of animals up close. Right. So Lily became obsessed. Him and his wife at the time, Mary, would charter sailboats around the Caribbean looking for dolphins and other big-brained marine mammals to observe them and study them. Big-brained babies. Oh, yeah. Exactly. But this was like out in the wild, you know, in the like out on a sailboat in the Caribbean voyage of the Don Mimi, if anyone knows that. Shout out to Ben Affleck. Okay. Did you have to watch that school? Nothing. It was like empty. It was like this weird uh, TV series about a um, sailboat and Ben Affleck is in it as a kid. So back to Lily. He came across Marine Studios in Miami, Florida. Shout out to my hometown. (laughs) And this was the first place to keep bottlenose dolphins in captivity, at least in the U.S., I think. And a lot of these dolphins, you may know them because they were actually actors in the show Flipper. Oh, okay. Yeah. So at this point, dolphins weren't really known for like their lovable, playful nature like they are today. Fishermen just saw them as competition for fish and they were kind of a nuisance to them. But Marine Studios had been teaching these dolphins tricks and putting on shows. And so like, you know, people couldn't resist them because they were just adorable and smart and could do all these things. Mm -hmm. Um, And John Lilly could not resist them. So them being in captivity kind of gave him the chance to study the brains using fine probes, which he had previously invented to use on monkeys. But dolphins can't be sedated because they stop breathing under sedation. So the whole oh. process of like setting up the brain probes and, you know, whatever, it was not fun for anyone, not for the dolphins, not for the scientists. Um, but Lily eventually did get the dolphins to mimic the sound of his voice back to them. They would, you know, mimic his tones. And Lily thought that maybe dolphins were trying to communicate with humans. So in 1961, he published his theory in a book called Man and Dolphin. Very smart guy. Not that creative. (laughs) With book titles. Okay. So get this. This book not only speculated that dolphins could learn English, but it went on to say that humans should teach them English to a point where they could eventually have a Cetacean chair at the UN and weigh in on world affairs. Oh my That's god! I feel like I feel like he might have lost a screw somewhere. <laughs> and this is like his normal time. This is also <laughs> the '60s. People were wild back then. <laughs> All right. So this book was a bestseller, and it caught the attention of some scientists at SETI, aka the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And we <gasps> talked about this yeah. back back in the day, episode twenty-four, unidentified fang objects. Uh-huh. So SETI was a group of scientists who were hoping to communicate with aliens using a radio telescope in West Virginia. Frank Drake was the founder, and he saw parallels between trying to talk to aliens and communicating with dolphins. Naturally. Quote, this is a quote from Frank, quote, because we both wanted to understand as much as we could about the challenges of communicating with other intelligent species. So Frank introduced Lily to Carl Sagan. Okay. He's involved in this. <laughs> okay. And together, they helped Lily get funding from NASA to do more research on dolphins. Dude, what? Mm-hmm. So Lily opened up like a kind of secret lab um, on the Caribbean island of St. Thomas in 1963. And he brought over three dolphins from the marina in Miami. Their names were Pamela, Sissy, and Peter. Uh, 
Pamela was yeah. Pamela was shy and fearful. Sissy was the biggest one. She was pushy and loud. She was like the leader of the dolphin group. Got it. And then Peter. Peter was the young, pubescent, teen boy dolphin. Very good. So this research lab was nothing like you've ever seen before. They basically thought that if dolphins were around humans enough, like doing everyday things, like going to the bathroom and, you know, make eating meals, whatever, they would eventually learn English. So they waterproofed a house and they filled it with pools of water so that it was a hybrid of like a dolphin tank and a laboratory. And they called it the dolphin house. Oh my God. How is this real? <laughs> yeah. All right. So it wasn't long before things started to get weird, but first we have to introduce someone else. Her name is Margaret Ho Lovett. So Lovett joined the crew a few months after they had opened. She was a college <laughs> dropout. She had no experience in animal research or science, but she was a huge animal lover. Gregory Bateson, who was the lab director, he noticed that she was really like good with animals and really great at observing like animal cues and language. So he let her join the team. Apparently in the 60s, who cared about school? You could just, you could just show walk up at in NASA at Dolphin like, House. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> so Bateson was more focused. He was kind of more uh, buttoned up. He was more focused on studying the communication between the dolphins. But Lovett pursued John Lilly's dream of teaching the dolphins English. Okay. And Someone's first of all, do it. a lot of people are like, there's a huge problem with this. Like, they should have just been focused on dolphin communication with each other. Um, yeah. Trying to teach the dolphin English. But anyways. Lovett chose Peter, the young male dolphin, as her subject because he had had less interaction with humans than Sissy and Pamela. Sissy and Pamela had been, you know, working on the set of Flipper, um, doing lots of tricks and stuff. So sure. Peter was younger. And Lovett worked long hours. She would like toil away all day and then pack up and go home. But it wasn't enough. Okay. She was completely enamored by the thought of Peter's big old dolphin brain floating around in the dolphin house all night. And she needed to move in and be with him 24 seven to really build a connection with him. So she did. They did construction on the dolphin house to give Lovett and Peter like a nice little apartment. So her bed was on an elevator platform in the middle of the room. Um, and she did paperwork on a desk suspended from the ceiling. She was there six days a week, and on the seventh day, Peter would return to the pool with the other two dolphins in the lab. And Poor these are some, Peter. Yeah. Well, these are some quotes from Lovett on her lessons with Peter. One of her repeated lessons was trying to teach him how to say, hello, Margaret, to greet her. She says, quote, M was very difficult. I worked on the M sound, and he eventually rolled over to bubble it through the water. That M, he worked on so hard. Quote, we had nothing to do when... Or when we had nothing to do was when we did the most. He was very, very interested in my anatomy. If I was sitting here and my legs were in the water, he would come up and look at the back of my knee for a long time. He wanted to know how that thing worked, and I was so charmed by it. This Love is it. freaking me out. Yeah. Love it wasn't the only one who was charmed, all right? You may already know that dolphins have a very high sex drive. High libidos. Oh. And Peter, our young teen dolphin, was very horny. So they used to, like, put him with the other dolphins once a week, you know, to get out his things. But this is proving to be cumbersome, okay? Because dolphins are annoying to move. They're huge and they're heavy and they're slippery and you can't sedate them. And it just, you know, it was taking time off of Margaret's, uh, you know, lessons with him. It oh was just becoming God. way too much work. Oh, my God. So Love It was like... I'm spending all this time moving this dang dolphin around the place and his boners keep like disrupting my lesson. So you know what? I'm just going to take care of it myself. <gasps> yeah. No, I knew it was going here and I didn't want it to. I really didn't want it to. And I knew it. Why do we have to have like weird sex topics this week? <laughs> okay. She, to be fair, it was just like an HJ situation. But according to Love It, 
I allowed that. I wasn't uncomfortable with it as long as it wasn't rough. It would just become a part of what was going on, like an itch. Just get rid of it, scratch it, and move on. And that's how it seemed to work out. It wasn't private. People could observe it. Another quote. Peter was right there, and he knew that I was right there. It wasn't sexual on my part. Sensuous, perhaps. It seemed to me that it made the bond closer. Not because of the sexual activity, but because of the lack of having to keep breaking. And that's really all it was. I was there to get to know Peter. And that was part of Peter. You know, I want okay. to give this lady the benefit of the doubt, but the lady doth protest too much that it wasn't <laughs> sexual. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I'm just sorry. All right. Well, the best oh. part was Hustler, you know, caught wind yeah. of this going on. So they ran a story about of it. Of course they did. Um, and which raised some eyebrows, to say the least. And the study started losing, you know, some credibility here. Yeah. So, well. Yeah. So what did John Lilly do? He's like, guys, we need to tone it down. Like, people are looking at us and we need to, you know, button things up a little bit. Just kidding. That's not what he did at all. He was like, let's give LSD to these dolphins. So <laughs> John Lilly was in Hollywood partying with Ivan Tours, who is the producer of Flipper. He doesn't <laughs> I- seem like the type to party. I'm sorry. It was the 60s, okay? okay? So Ivan's wife was the one who introduced him to LSD. And Lily was like, holy crap, this is amazing. And he became one of the few neuroscientists to be licensed to do research on LSD in the 1960s. So naturally, he started to give LSD to the dolphins. These poor fucking dolphins. Yeah, but it seemed to have almost no effect on them. And he was like kind of pissed about it. But I... Lovett begged Lily not to give Peter LSD. She was like, please, he does not want that. And, and Lily did oblige. Um, but he started becoming, like, less interested in Lovett's English lessons with Peter because he was just, like, focused on the LSD at this point. That's all he cared about. He was like, I don't care about teaching the English anymore, whatever. So eventually, you know, things got so out of hand. We had, like, Lovett giving Peter, you know, jingling his jangles upstairs. And then we had <laughs> Pamela and Sissy downstairs, like, rolling on LSD, being like, dude, I'm looking at my thin and it's like inside out. And so Gregory Bateson, who was like the lab director, quit the lab. He was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And NASA was like, yeah, no, like we're not funding (laughs) this anymore. And I imagine Carl Sagan was like, hello, I'm like a serious researcher and I'm trying to get... That's what I was wondering. (laughs) He's like, I'm trying to get funds for other research, so I don't want to be associated with this anymore. So basically everything got like shut down because it was just getting way too out of hand. So John Lilly basically lost his credibility as a neuroscientist, and the dolphins were sent back to Miami to much crappier facilities than the dolphin house. I mean, how can you compare with that? You're getting sex, you're getting drugs. I mean, it's like a party over there. And this is actually kind of sad. Peter was so upset in his change in lifestyle that he committed suicide. (gasps) Yeah. So dolphins, they don't breathe subconsciously. They have to choose to take a breath. So basically, he just went down to the bottom of his tank and chose not to take any more breaths. Isn't that sad? I I have no words, actually. My heart has literally broken. So the real question is, you know, like, obviously this is very icky because it's just weird. Like, bestiality is icky. But I think one of the biggest problems with bestiality is, like, you know, animals can't really consent to that. Right. But mm-hmm. does it matter the emotional intelligence of the animal? Could a dolphin consent? I mean, it seems like he was upset when it got taken away from him. But I also feel like people or things that experience abuse like you know are living through some sort of traumatic experience without realizing it's traumatic and then like when their abuser's not around like they have a complicated relationship with their abuser 
And I'm not saying that Peter knew or didn't know what was going on. Like, obviously, I don't know much about dolphin intelligence other than they are extremely intelligent. But like, well, they were saying that he was like rubbing up on her and, you know, <laughs> well, he didn't know. have anyone else to do it with because they kept him isolated from actual dolphins. Like, I mean, my dog humps pillows because he can't hump a real human or not human. Oh, <laughs> uh, squeeze? A real purse. Like, fuck. <laughs> um, Freud much? A real dog. Do you know what I mean? Like. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I right. say that she shouldn't have done that. And I know. I, I, I tend to agree with you. Oh, um, my God. But she, you know, she's written a book. Like, there's the documentaries on her and everything. But. At what you, you want to know what happened to her after the lab shut down? Yeah. She ended up marrying a human, um, a, oh. the photographer who worked like at the research lab. So any of the pictures that you're going to see us post of her and the dolphin, her future husband took them. Um, and they actually converted the dolphin house into a family home and they raised their three daughters there. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. She says, quote, it was a good place. There were good feelings. There was a good feeling in that building all the time. And I'm like, these, ki- these kids, they're like, hey, mom, tell us what you and Peter did in our bedroom. <laughs> How did she respond to Peter's suicide? She actually, I don't know, it was kind of weird. She said that she wasn't that upset by it. Sounds like something an abuser would say, just going to say. Maybe. Yeah, she just, she said she just like accepted that he was gone, but didn't tarnish the memories that they had together um god yeah okay so that's basically the lsd dolphin experiments that happened um the one good thing that happened with all of this i don't know if it's worth it is that people i mean i think we could have come around a different way but basically people realized that dolphins were extremely intelligent and extremely socially and emotionally intelligent and this led to like a bunch of different marine life protections being put into place not that that helped that much because then we had sea world and all that good stuff but right yeah, that is that is one silver lining. And yeah. I got all of my information from two articles. One was on Cracked.com called An Infamous NASA Experiment Involved a Horny Dolphin and LSD by Mac Farber. <laughs> and the Guardian uh, article called The Dolphin Who Loved Me, The NASA-Funded Project That Went Wrong by Christopher Riley. So I did not want to say those articles in the beginning because it would have just given away all right. the twists and turns right. that happened. OMG. I know. Um, you, <laughs> I feel like we've both been through the ringer here. <laughs> <laughs> we did. Qu- quite the episode. Um, basically, in the 60s, NASA was nuts. If you want to listen to other crazy things they did, we have the moon expedition, the mm-hmm. moon landing. Also, there's other, like, problematic studies that happened with LSD in particular. So you can just, like, Google that as well. Um, done by, like, people like the CIA. You know? Mm-hmm. So They're all connected connected okay um i feel horrible for peter um i can't stop thinking about him well drunk history did a episode on this i came across it in my research and it's actually pretty funny and like dr drew is the host but anyways um <laughs> yeah he's not the one getting drunk i'm not sure what the situation is oh, but okay, okay. if you want to learn more uh i don't know how fa- i mean it seemed pretty factual actually after doing my research but right yeah i mean i don't know dude People were nuts back then. That is putting it lightly. People were nuts back in 400 uh, CE. Well, so. <laughs> exactly. People are still nuts now. So it actually makes sense. If but, we've oh, learned anything from horny dolphins, it's that people are nuts. Um, one thing I, that I thought was funny was Frank 
Drake, who was like the SETI alien mm-hmm. guy who kind of like helped fund this, he was saying, he was like, well, you should do um, like a study where you have two dolphins in a tank, but you make it so they can't see each other. And you teach one to do like a task to get a, to get food and see if that dolphin can communicate with the other dolphin how to do the same task, like just by talking to them to see if they can, you know, get the treat. Right. And I think he sent like Carl Sagan down to look at, see what was going on there. And Carl's like, yeah, they're not doing that. <laughs> oh, And they God. didn't do anything like that. They were just like going nuts. Um, nuts is our other uh, secret word of the day. But <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that, that's all I got for you. On okay. LSD. I'm glad because I don't know if I can do any more LSD yeah. boner or LSD dolphin boners. So <laughs> fair. All right. Well, um, in Thanks the meantime, listening to yeah. that wild podcast episode. Thank you, and we're sorry. And if you want to talk to us, you can find us on Twitter at the Good Eve Girls or Instagram at the Good Evening Girls or on TikTok, aka Lake Talk at the Good Eve Girls. It's true. Um, and until then, see you next time. It's always a joy, folks. We're the Good Evening Girls. Bye bye. Bye. Don't forget to check us out on Filmian's podcast Tuesday, January nineteenth. I'm sure we're not going to embarrass ourselves at all. Oh,